Listener Production. Adam Grant is an organisational psychologist and best-selling author who explores the science of generosity, rethinking and potential. He's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning, rethink assumptions and live more generous and creative lives. This is the second time I've interviewed Adam and I do adore this man. He's kind, intelligent and only wants the best for humanity. In the conversation that follows, we discuss how we unlock hidden potential in ourselves, how to create opportunities for yourself when they don't come knocking on your door, and the difference between learning and working hard. It's such an important and overlooked point. Where you start does not determine how far you can go. And yes, there are some people who start out with natural advantages and have an easier time learning math or a foreign language. But the speed of initial learning doesn't actually have that much bearing on how high your ceiling is. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Adam Grant is the author of some of my favourite books, including Originals, Think Again and his newest book, Hidden Potential. In its essence, this conversation shines a light on the value of acceptable mistakes and how to see the hidden potential in others and champion them. My hope is that this exchange inspires you to do the internal work required to live a more integrated and purpose-driven life. Adam, you've got your new book out, Hidden Potential, which is just another amazing book to add to your collection of amazing books. And what I love about this book is that you wrote it because you say everyone has hidden potential and this book is about how we unlock it. So I wanted to start there and know a bit about your experience with this. Well, thank you, Sarah. I think, gosh, I think my proudest achievements are things that I was terrible at when I started to the point that I probably should have given up because I had so little talent or so many struggles. And I, one of the clearest examples for me is with public speaking. I signed up to to become a professor being terrified of public speaking. I'm an introvert. I'm shy. The early comments from students said that I reminded them of a Muppet and <laughs> <laughs> that I was so nervous I was causing them to physically shake in their seats. And I really wasn't sure what to do. So I thought, okay, I need more practice. I started teaching a class for military leaders and the comments were even more brutal. Uh, One of them wrote that there was more knowledge in the audience than on the podium. (gasps) And I was like, facts? (laughs) Hard to argue with that one. And then another one wrote on the evaluation that, quote, I gained nothing from this session, but I trust the instructor got useful insight. Oh my God. It's devastating. Uh, I, I felt like I was a complete failure. Uh, I was not cut out for this job. 
And I had two choices. One was to walk away. The other was to try to get better. And I chose the latter path and I still have a long way to go. But one of the things I learned is that you can, tr- you can turn your critics into coaches. And the way I did that was I started asking every single person who attended one of my talks or classes what I could do better next time. And it made a huge difference. And I actually started learning how to improve. And here we are. And I don't hate public speaking anymore. It's so interesting, though, because I think criticism, it's an interesting thing in the sense that it can be really good because obviously you learn about areas that you need to improve, but it can also really like be the end for someone, depending on the way that you take that criticism. And the criticism you mentioned just then was quite harsh. Maybe there were elements of constructiveness within it, but the first ones you mentioned didn't sound like that. How did you not just say, okay, it's not for me. I don't want to do public speaking. I'm obviously not good at it and just shut it down altogether. That's a good question. I think, frankly, I was afraid to walk away because I'd made a commitment. Yeah. And I felt like it was my responsibility to deliver on that commitment. Part of that was I wanted to pay forward the incredible teaching I'd benefited from as a student. Part of that was I had knowledge that I thought was worth sharing. And I really enjoyed connecting with people and trying to get those ideas on the table. And I guess I realized that I had some hidden potential when one of my mentors looked at me and said, Adam, you have to unleash your inner magician. And I never really connected the dots before, but <laughs> the, the years I spent performing magic as a teenager, uh, they were a little practice coming out of my shell. But they also gave me a chance to learn how to weave in the element of surprise and deal with hecklers in the audience. And I never really thought about channeling those skills, but they were totally applicable to my new role as a teacher and a speaker. And as I started doing more audience interaction, um, the, the experience really changed. In fact, with the military leaders, I had already committed to do a second session. I think it was a week or two after the, the devastating one. And I didn't have time to reboot my material or rethink the, the content. I'd already packed in everything I knew. All I could do was, was change the way that I connected with them. And I walked into the second session, new group of, of military generals and colonels. And I said, look, I know what you're all thinking right now. What can I possibly learn from a professor who's 12 years old? I was waiting for laughter. They did not laugh. They were very serious. Uh, they had nicknames like Gunner and Striker and Sand Dune. And after what felt like an eternity, one of them piped up and said, that's ridiculous. You got to be at least 13. Oh, God. And, and then they burst out laughing and the ice broke. And I, I taught very similar material, but instead of trying to lead with my credentials and my expertise, I had called out the elephant in the room and you know, sort of bonded with them on a more personal level. And we ended up learning from each other. And the feedback forms were night and day different afterward. One of them wrote that, although junior and experienced, the instructor dealt with the evidence in an interesting way. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that kind of interaction taught me, hey, there are a lot of ways to unleash your inner magician. And just because I'm bad at this by my starting point doesn't mean I can't get better at it. Mm. In this book, you talk a bit about like nurture nature, which is very interesting. And you say neglecting the impact of nurture has dire consequences. I want to talk a little bit about that because people think like we're born with intelligence or we're born to be good at certain things. And there's quite a few examples that you use in the book to do with like learning languages. And I know for me, I learnt French from prep to year, I think it was prep to year nine. 
and I was so bad at it. And I remember thinking to myself, someone said to me that the side of the brain that holds maths also holds languages. And I thought that side of the brain obviously doesn't work very well for me. And I'm completely <laughs> in the other side where it's English and literature and drama and all those sort of things. And kind of listening to, well, reading your book and, and hearing about what your experiences and the people that you spoke to, like that is not always true. And I'd love, I'd love you to speak on that. It's such an important and overlooked point. Like where you start does not determine how far you can go. Yes. And yes, there are some people who start out with natural advantages and have an easier time learning math or a foreign language. But the speed of initial learning doesn't actually have that much bearing on how high your ceiling is. So we see that with, with language learners, as you know, that there's not necessarily um, you know, just a language gene or even a critical window. Um, that one of the things that makes kids really good at learning languages that makes adults struggle is that kids babble all the time. And they start using foreign words the moment they learn them. Whereas as we get older, we start to get sensitive to embarrassment and we think we've got to master the language before we start using it. And when you don't speak it, you don't really internalize it. Um, I think the, you know, the same is true for so many different skills. And very often, the fact that a skill is initially hard for you to learn means that you, you end up putting more effort into it. And if you can master it, you understand it more deeply than the people who did it effortlessly. And so that may even mean over time that you have a higher ceiling on your potential than somebody who's just used to succeeding immediately. And then the moment it gets hard, will get frustrated and give up. I, I think a, there was a great example of this in, in the research and, and examples on chess. So mm. I always thought of chess as a game of genius, but it turns out that having a lot of brain power, a high IQ, um, is only helpful for learning chess if you're a kid or a novice. And that once you reach the master or grandmaster level, intelligence has really nothing to do with your skill at chess. And uh, this extraordinary chess grandmaster and coach, Maurice Ashley, said to me, listen, the child prodigies are the ones that I worry about most mm. because they don't know how to face struggle and overcome it. Whereas the kids who you know, weren't necessarily brilliant at chess on day one, they build resilience, they learn character skills, they're unfazed when they lose, and they end up you know, not only persisting, but ultimately um, progressing further in a lot of cases. So when it comes to parents and nurturing our children, what have you learned that we should do to get the best out of them, especially if they think that they're not good at a certain subject? Well, I think it really depends on, on the kid. The first thing to remember, though, is that sometimes as parents, we're delivering the right message, but it's coming from the wrong source. Mm. It's so easy for kids to feel that their autonomy and freedom is being threatened and restricted by their parents. Mm. And so even supportive you know, feedback, even encouragement and well-intentioned advice can lead to a lot of resistance. So the first thing I would ask is, can you find a coach or teacher or mentor who's not you? Uh, and <laughs> having somebody who's not related believe in your hidden potential uh, sometimes means more because it feels more objective. Mm. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, when, when kids struggle, our, our impulse as parents is you know, to give them the answer and try to become Yoda. <laughs> like, I'm going to deliver all this wisdom from on high. And what that does is it, it puts kids in a passive position of receiving. And what we want to do is, is help them become active. And the easiest way to do that is actually not to tell them what to do, 
but to ask them what advice they would give to someone else who's struggling. Hmm. And what psychologists find is that you actually become more motivated when you give advice than when you receive it because you're generating the answers. That gives you a sense of confidence. You also are generating answers that you find compelling and those are persuasive to you. So I found this really useful with our kids. Um, when, when our kids have a hard time at something, uh, we, just, we just had this actually. And um, one of our kids came back from a soccer game and said, uh, I, I had a horrible game and I'm not good at soccer. And every fiber of my being wanted to say, that's not true. Let me call out all the, the good plays you made. There was an incredible pass. Um, it almost led to a goal. Uh, you got back on defense and you know you stopped a kid who was like twice your size. Uh, I, I think there were some moments that weren't perfect, but the, you did a lot of things that you could be really proud of. But immediately, that's going to get dismissed. And so what I remembered to do, and I don't always remember to do this, but in that moment, what I remembered to do finally was to say, well, do you, think, do you think everybody thought you played a bad game? What did your coach think? What did your teammates think? And you know, the answer was, well, no. You know, my coach said a couple of, you know, I got a couple of compliments, shouted out loud in front of the whole team. Okay, do you think there are other kids who weren't happy with how they played? Yeah. Okay, what would you tell them? What would you say to those kids who weren't happy with their performance? And the answer I get back is, uh, well... <laughs> don't just focus on the things that went wrong. Also consider the things that you did well. Mm. And guess what? That's exactly what I wanted to say, Sarah, but it didn't have to come from me. Yeah, that's so true. When sometimes when it doesn't come from you, your children think that you're their parents, so you have to say nice things to them. It's just part of the job. So when it does come <laughs> from someone else, then it has a lot more impact than when it's from you. But those are very wise words. You say when there's a will, there's a way, but when you can't see a path, you stop dreaming of the destination. And I've heard that before. It's really beautiful. How do we illuminate the path for those that may not be able to see it or even just for ourselves? I think the mistake that a lot of us make, and we, we do this in, in mentoring all the time, is we want to give people directions. Mm. The problem is they're not starting from the same place as us. And so what, you know, what was a great path for me might be a wrong turn for you. And I think the, the best thing we can do is to say, here's what worked for me. How do you think this applies to you? Mm. And let people know that they're going to have to come up with their own directions that as a mentor, what I can do is I can probably give a compass and tell you if, if you're on a productive path or not. But I won't know every landmark. I won't know every turn. I won't know when it's time for you to, to actually backtrack and, and find a different route. I think showing that humility is really important. The, the research on this suggests that some of the, the best doers are actually the worst teachers because they're so far from where you are that they don't even remember what it's like to be in your shoes. And sometimes, you know, they, they have a tacit knowledge that they don't even realize that they have and they don't know how to explain it or unpack it for you. The saying is that those who can't do teach, I think what the evidence suggests is actually that those who can do can't teach the basics. Mm. So I would say the person you want to go to is often somebody who's two or three steps ahead of you, yeah. not light years ahead of you. Uh, because they can remember where you are. They can relate to you. They know what it's like to struggle in your position. And I think that's a great starting point. Now, you you also asked about how we illuminate the path for ourselves. So I'm, I'm curious, Sarah, what greater thing are you trying to achieve? 
Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking that when you were talking, I was going to ask you the question about your path. And also when I was reading this in the book and I started writing the questions, I started reflecting on my own life and that path was in my mind always illuminated for me. I didn't know exactly where I was going to end up and I'm still very much on the journey. But when I reflect on it, I just had this light in me that knew that they wanted to work in a certain area. With age, I kind of knew the skills that I became really good at and what I enjoyed. And I just kind of kept following that and following that and following that. And it worked in my favor. And really, like, I still shock myself on how, like, wow, that that kind of when I was four and I was watching The Wizard of Oz and dreaming about working in entertainment and, you know, I didn't think I'd interview people or do the other things that I do or speak to big groups of people and talk about greatness. But I, I had the seed there. I love the world of entertainment. So, yeah, I, I see people in front of me now that are doing great things. I mean, you're one of them. We do different stuff, but, you know, what you've done in your life is exceptional and it's very inspiring. And so, yes, it, it allows me to see, oh, that can be done and that can be done because, like we said, the path is there because I'm watching other people do slightly different things but on a similar journey, I suppose. Well, I appreciate the kind words. It's a lot of pressure. I'm going to have to try to live up to that in the future. But I, I think you're, you're hitting on something really important that I, I didn't spend enough time on in Hidden Potential, which is psychologists find that when you, when you just ask kids, and I think this is true for adults too, um, if you ask them what their dreams are, they end up aiming lower than if you have them come up with some role models first. Yes. And when you see a specific example, all of a sudden it raises your expectations of what's possible. I think if we're not careful, though, those role models can also be demoralizing and, and just a little bit too daunting. Like they, they seem out of reach in so many cases. The people I look up to, I'm never going to be in their league. I think what we need to do is we need to rewind the clock and look at what our role models did when they were at our stage or our age. And ideally, we have a bunch of those. And as you see multiple role models, you realize like how nonlinear the path is, how many different routes there are to the same destination. And there's a, there's a term for that in systems dynamics. It's called equifinality, which is one of my favorite terms. Um, and it's a really simple idea with a complex word behind it, which is there are always in any complex system, multiple routes to the same end. Yes. I think it's so important to remind that because we, we get advice all the time that says, like, if you want to achieve X, you must do Y and Z. <laughs> no, that's always false. There is never a, you have to do the following in order to get where you want to go. And the person who's telling you that is, uh, is probably anchored too narrowly on their own experience or just a couple of examples. That's so true. When you reflect on your own journey thus far, because it's, you know, still early days, who, A, are your role models and B, what did young Adam believe that his journey was going to be or dream for it to be? I had no idea. I, I went from wanting to be a, a professional baseball and then basketball player to thinking it might be interesting to write novels or make movies. I didn't know what an organizational psychologist was. I didn't know what a professor was. I didn't know that like, university teachers did research too. I didn't know that there was such a thing as, I don't even know what we are, like, thought leader, public intellectual. I really had no clue. I feel like I've had a lot of different role models over time and I've actually stopped picking people as role models mm. because at some point like you, see, you see them up close or you meet them and you realize they're only human. Yes. Oh, I've had that experience many times. I mean, how, how many times have you oh. been so excited to meet someone and you're like, don't. Yes. Should have just admired you from afar. Yes. 
I was thinking that before when you were talking about role models when sometimes they're divine and then other times you're like, oh, damn. You know, obviously putting them on a pedestal is is a mistake. Yes. It's it's helpful to to remember that they're human. And I think once you do that, at least what, what I've decided to do is, is to say, look, I don't want to admire people. I want to admire specific skills and virtues. Mm. And so I wouldn't say, let, let's take a, a specific example. Somebody I've looked up to as a role model as a writer is Maya Angelou. Mm. But I'm really specific about what do I admire? I admire her way with words. And I'm specifically impressed by the way that she uses imagery uh, to convey an idea. And that's something I want to get better at. So I'm not making Maya Angelou my hero. I'm not expecting her to dazzle me on every dimension. What I'm doing is looking at you know, how she, she turns abstract concepts into things that you can feel like you can touch and taste. That makes it really easy to never be disappointed. It also reminds me, I have a lot of skills I'm trying to get better at. And so I don't want to limit myself to just a few role models. That's really wise words. You say making significant gains doesn't require you to be a workaholic and push you to the edge of exhaustion, which, you know, when I read that, I was like, yes, that's true. But sometimes you do feel that you're doing a lot of work and there are times that you're exhausted. But I do feel like I see people who have achieved, who definitely are at the height of success, who do less than when they weren't at the height of success. So it's like they needed to kind of put in the work to get there. But I'd love to know what your beliefs are on that. Well, my job is not to have beliefs. It's to look at the data and then try to rethink my assumptions accordingly. And on this one, I think the, the evidence is clear that in the long run, that the people who, you know, just try to push themselves through the daily grind are at risk for burnout you see this with elite musicians. You see it in studies of, um, of national-level athletes trying to become world-class that the pounding the pavement exhausts them emotionally, not just physically. And even before that, a lot of them experience what I think of as the, the opposite of burnout, which is called bore-out. One of my favorite terms. Uh, it's when you're literally bored out of your mind by just the repetitive monotony of practice. And I think that what's much more feasible is to say, I want to turn the daily grind into a source of daily joy. Mm. And that means you need elements of practice that feel like play. So let's go back to Maya Angelou. So she's not my role model as a human. She's an exemplar of a particular thing I want to get better at. Um, And that thing is, I'm an abstract concrete thinker. Um, My writing tends to live in the world of ideas and data. And I want to make sure that there's emotion and story in there. So... For years, I just found editing incredibly boring. Like It's a slog to rewrite the same sentence or paragraph over and over and over again to try to bring in, you know, breathe more life into it. And then it hit me when I was writing about this idea of deliberate play, not just deliberate practice, that I could do that. That I could try to rewrite my paragraph in the voice of Maya Angelou. And all of a sudden, it became fun. Mm. It, was, it was an enjoyable challenge, and I wanted to see if I can master it. And now, thanks to Claude and ChatGPT and other generative AI tools... I can actually spit the paragraph in and say, here's a draft, please rewrite this in the voice of Maya Angelou. And I can see how well I did. And that, that has made, for me, the practice of honing this skill much more enjoyable and less dreadful. You talk about procrastination, which I think is really interesting. And you say many people associate procrastination with laziness, 
But psychologists find that procrastination is not a time management problem, it's an emotion management problem. When you procrastinate, you're avoiding effort, you're avoiding the unpleasant feelings that the activity stirs up. Sooner or later, though, you realise that you're also avoiding getting where you want to go. I love that. Let's talk about procrastination because I used to have that with public speaking. Someone said to me years ago, you need to memorise your speech. And I'm thinking, oh, I do not want to memorise this. And the thought of memorising a speech, it actually, when I went to do it, I feel exhausted from having high energy to going to do the task like, oh my God, I'm so tired all of a sudden. And I would do everything in my power to not learn the speech. And then when it, you know, I knew that, okay, they said that I had to memorise it and it just did not work for me. And then I thought, you know what? I know this information back to front. Why do I need to memorise it? I'm getting up there. I know the stories and I'm just going to talk to them. And I've never done better speeches in my life. But it was interesting what you wrote about procrastination because it reminded me of that time because I don't normally procrastinate, but I just did not want to memorise. It just was something I didn't want to do. So this is a very interesting topic I want to talk to. Well, I think that when people beat themselves up for procrastinating, they do think that they're, you know, they're just lacking like the willpower that they need yeah. to get into gear. And I think the research of Fuchsia Sirwa is so powerful on this. What she shows is that people are avoiding a negative emotion, that the task you're putting off is often one that makes you feel unpleasant in some way. Mm. Uh, in some cases, that may be fear or anxiety. I don't know if I can do this. In other cases, it sounds like, it sounds like um, both you and I really procrastinate when we're bored. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's just like, I just don't want to like muddle through the, like, the same thing over and over again. Um, some people procrastinate when they're stuck or when they're confused. And they, they just feel like, you know, I can't figure this out. And so I don't, I don't want to wrestle with the feeling of incompetence and the sense of being lost. I think the the opportunity here is to look at the emotions that consistently cause you to procrastinate and then ask, how can I change those emotions for the task I'm trying to get done or the project that I'm doing? And so in your case, you actually shifted the expectations and said, wait a minute, like the memorization is boring. Maybe I don't need to memorize in the first place. In my case, what I'm doing is I'm trying to take a boring task that I have to do um, and make it more creative. Mm. Uh, and bring in some, you know, some inputs and some fresh ways of doing it in other people's voices that I wouldn't have thought of. I think there, there's almost a limitless number of, of ways that you could go about changing the emotion. But once you recognize it as an emotion regulation problem, a different set of solutions comes to mind than if you think you've just got to gotta find the will uh, yes. and you got to convince yourself that, you know, that this is actually exciting. No, you don't have to convince yourself of anything. What you have to do is pinpoint what is undesirable about about that task to you and then change the way you experience the task. I remember years ago I spoke to, I'm sure you know him, Stephen Kotler, and we were talking about flow. And one thing that he said was that you should always do your hardest or most challenging thing for the day first and then you kind of get that over and done with and then move into the other things and you you feel good as well because you've done that thing rather than have it be at the end of the day. How do you organize your day? And especially if there are harder tasks that or more boring tasks that you don't want to do, like how do you prioritize? Well, I used to start with my most interesting project because I thought that that would, like, that would be a, just a win to begin the, yeah. the day with and it would energize me for what's next. 
And then Jihei Shin and I did some research showing that if you do a, a really interesting task and then a boring one afterward, the boring task suffers because it feels even more dreadful um, in contrast with the one you love. Like you, you might have disliked it before and now you hate it. Yes. So, you know, what that means is I've, I've started to taper. And so some mornings I do start with my favorite task and then I'll make sure if I've got a boring task that really matters, I have a moderately interesting one in between <laughs> so that the, you know, the contrast isn't so stark. But in other cases, what I do is instead of my most interesting project, I want to start with the most important one. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's just one that a lot of people are relying on me for. Yes. That you know, has a bigger impact than other things I'm responsible for. And so that, that gives me a different kind of progress and, and momentum. Um, it's, you know, not necessarily just that I tackled my most difficult thing of the day. It's that I feel like I made a contribution today. I did something that matters and that gives me a sense of purpose and uh, allows me to feel like, you know, my morning was well spent. So that's probably my, my favorite starting point. In your book, you were talking about your kids and you were talking about when you were reading to them and how a lot of parents, well, a lot of us forget sometimes how important it is to read to our kids. And and you were talking about this instance when you'd read Harry Potter to them and you read like the whole book to them and they loved it. And, you know, I've got a son who is obsessed with reading to the extent where like we have to stop him from reading. Like he takes the book into the bath, he takes it to the <laughs> toilet and we're like... I was that kid. Great problem to have if you want to raise an author. Seriously, it's like he eats so slowly because he has a book next to him the whole time. And we're like, get the book away. And I just think, what a blessing that I'm saying this to my child. But then my daughter, who's a bit younger, she's like the opposite. Please tell us about your experience of raising kids and reading to them and the importance. I think one of the turning points for me, and I should have seen this coming, but I didn't, was when uh, one of our daughters said to me, why don't you read? <laughs> why, why don't you read ever? Yes, that's right. Like, what are you talking about? I read all the time. I, I think I have more books than all of their possessions combined. Uh, reading is, is probably my favorite hobby. How could she possibly think this? And then I realized that I did all of my reading when she was at school or asleep. And she never saw me read. And what a missed opportunity mm-hmm. to model, right? The, the joy of reading. I think kids learn a lot from observing what you spend your time on. They pay attention to your attention. And if they see you on your phone and not in a book, they're going to think that the phone is more interesting than a book. So we decided that we were going to start reading together. And, you know, our our kids were, at least our, our daughters were old enough at that point that we could have them read with us as opposed to just us reading to them. And so my wife and I started each reading books with them. And I picked Harry Potter because I'd always wanted to read it with our kids. I first read it in college and and loved it. And, you know, initially I was reading a page and then, you know, they would kind of jump in for a sentence or two. And by the time we finished the first book, our, our middle daughter was like, she was, she was reading as much as I was. And she would do four or five pages before she would turn it over to me. And mm. we would normally try to rotate every, every page or two. And she would get so caught up in the story that she would forget that it was my turn. Mm. And it was, it was just, it was such a joyful moment. But also then like, she would, she would read ahead and then say, you have to catch up. Uh, and that was when I saw the intrinsic motivation to read really take off. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, the people always say that if you want someone to change rather than force them to change, you need to be the change. And then if they're interested, they will mimic that. 
I want to talk about someone you speak about in your book, Melody Hobson, a girl who had quite a stressful childhood. She grew up in an environment where a lot of the time they couldn't afford to pay for the electricity bills and have hot water and all that kind of stuff. This girl ended up excelling in life. And I think it's a beautiful story because it also shows that you don't have to grow up in a certain way to have the potential within you. It's not about like coming from a family that is well-to-do. Yeah, I'd love you to talk to that. Melody Hobson is is one of the most powerful people on Wall Street uh, and just widely respected for her expertise, her ability to to challenge other people's thinking. By, by all accounts, she should not have made it. Um, being raised by a single mother in poverty in Chicago, being evicted from their apartment, uh, having their car repossessed, Uh, being the target of racism. I mean, just so many obstacles in her path. And it was very clear that opportunity was not going to knock for Melody Hobson. So what she did was she built a door. And I think one of of her key skills was she became a human sponge. Uh, And... You know, I think people people like to use this metaphor and say like, yeah, I like to, you know, absorb everything around me. Well, Melody didn't just absorb what was available to her. She proactively sought out information. At one point, she was following her mentor, John Rogers, to McDonald's on Saturday mornings because that's when he read the newspaper. And she would sit with him while he ate breakfast with his newspaper in front of him. And that's how she learned about the stock market. I have this image in my in my head of, you know, a young Melody following her mentor to McDonald's on a Saturday morning because she was so determined to learn about this world that she knew nothing about. And that kind of initiative is, I think, you know, unfortunately, a necessary step in a world where too many people are denied the opportunity they deserve. What have you learned in writing this book about the environments that people grow up in and where they kind of end up? What do you think gives people more drive than others? That's a good question. I, I think from, you know, from all the research I did going into the book and especially the people I met who had transcended their circumstances, mm. I think I became a big believer in the power of, of other people seeing your potential, but in a way that I didn't expect. I thought that the key, if you're a Melody Hobson, is to have one ongoing mentor you know, who raises the bar for you and who opens doors for you. And certainly there are examples of people who have, you know, who have achieved greater things because of one role model or one mentor. But most of the time, it seems that the kind of support that people need is much more temporary and actually much more accessible. Psychologists call it scaffolding. And just like when you think about the the scaffolding that a construction crew would use to reach a, a higher level of a building, and then at some point, the scaffolding is removed and you know, the building can stand on its own. I think that learning is a lot like that. That initially what you need is a mentor to, you know, to help you see possibility in yourself, a capacity for growth, to raise your expectations, and then give you some initial guidance. But then deliberately remove the support and let you learn on your own. And that sense of independence, that sense that I can teach myself is huge. I became so enamored with the Tudor effect, the idea that just as you can motivate yourself by motivating others, you can actually learn by teaching others. Mm. It's so often said that the, the best way to learn something is to teach it. I don't think people realize, though, that you can do this long before you've reached a level of expertise or mastery. 
that as a beginner, if you want to learn something, one of the best things you can do is just sign up to teach a class on it or sit down and try to explain it to someone else or write a short blog post on it. Because when you recall it, you remember it better. And when you explain it, you understand it better. I've become a big fan of not only getting a little bit of scaffolding from others, but also creating your own scaffolding by finding somebody else who wants to learn what you want to learn and actually seeing if you could teach it to them. Mm. When you reflect on your own life, Adam, like your childhood and then also your early days of getting into the world of you know teaching and speaking, who saw the light in you and kind of mentored you? Well, an easy answer to that is Brian Little incredible personality psychologist who came to my university campus when I think I was a sophomore and a bunch of my friends took his class. He was, uh, he was doing a fellowship there and he wasn't even supposed to teach. One of my other mentors uh, slipped and, and broke her ankle a couple of days before the class started. And he, in a pinch, he stepped in and he just dazzled students with his wisdom and wit And I kept hearing about him and eventually I got introduced to him and I sat down with him for what was supposed to be a 30 minute meeting to maybe talk about an undergraduate thesis. And Brian Little sat down with me for more than three hours. Wow. And instead of asking about what I wanted to do my thesis on, he wanted to understand my passions in life and the burning questions that I had. And in that conversation, I realized not only that I wanted to become a psychologist, but also that I wanted to try to do for other people what Brian Little did for me. Hmm. That's beautiful. I want to know, Adam, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? The best advice is to take other people's advice with a grain of salt. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) When did you discover that? (laughs) When my mom told me, don't become a teacher, it's really boring. (laughs) She taught English and Spanish for 35 or so years, and she hated performing over and over again. Yeah. And I had to understand that her personality was really different from mine. She's extremely extroverted. I'm an introvert to begin the long list of differences. But also, she was teaching at a different level. Mm. And she didn't get to design her own class from scratch. She didn't get to pick the topics she was endlessly fascinated by. She didn't necessarily get to you know, have all these other hats, like teaching is a piece of my job, but I get to do research and write and speak and do podcasts. And I'm really glad that I had discounted that advice. And you know, it's funny because her giving me that advice just made me more determined to do it. I was like, you, you can't dictate my path. And maybe that particular teaching role was not ideally suited for you. But I think this one could be a great fit for me. Yeah, so true. What is a life of greatness to you? To me, a life of greatness is not about performance. It's about progress. It's aspiring to be better today than we were yesterday. Adam Grant, you've got a As we've talked about in this interview, your book, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things, is an unbelievable read. All your books are very life-changing. This one is exceptional. Everyone should read it. Thank you again for the fabulous conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Well, as always, you're too generous with your praise. And I really appreciate, as always, how carefully you read and how thoughtful you are about figuring out what are the themes that are worth diving into and 
what deserves to be animated in a way that sometimes is hard to do on the page. So thank you for that. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.